0: And if people are going to be equally ambitious on the next you know, generation of whatever needs to be solved in the world, let's say next generation satellites, well, then how are they going to do it? The following our gut was like, hey, what would the world have looked like? Or what would our experience have been like if that digital connectivity layer that we had to build was actually available for us? And what could it look like if we actually bring something out to market that does that? Does that actually allow for new types of hardware to be created, new types of companies to be formed, so on and so forth?
1: Welcome to Engineering Founders, the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. In this conversation, we talk about assessing emerging trends and several different counterintuitive product building strategies with Karan Taladi, co-founder and CEO at First Resonance. And we get into topics like... How to identify ideas that maybe aren't needed yet, but likely will be in the future. So, it's a lot about predicting emerging trends and exponential technology. We talk about how to assess and validate your early hypothesis, different frameworks to assess emerging trends and pain points. And we talk about the dilemma of should you build your product for breadth versus depth, and how to land your first customers in a mission critical space. Let me introduce you to Karan and First Residence. Karan is co founder and CEO. He's built data and automation systems to enable rocket reusability at SpaceX. At First Resonance, they're solving manufacturing's biggest challenges, and organizations use their factorating operating system, ION, to accelerate and optimize their production processes from prototyping to production. Enjoy our conversation with Karan Talati. Karan, just wanted to say welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Happy Friday. We, we get a chance to hang out on a, on a Friday morning.
0: Happy Friday. Yes, I am doing well. You know, it's been a a long week, a very dynamic week, Uh, you know, some great winds, some uh, some lows, you know, but look, it's Friday, it's sunny out, you know, I'm feeling good to be alive and feeling good to be here talking to you about, about the journey, you know.
1: Well, I've never. I've never asked somebody th- this next question, and it's it's like for you as a founder on a Friday, like is it you review the end of the week? Are you already looking at the the future week? Like, what is the, like your intentional Friday look like as a as a founder?
0: Oh wow, that's a good question. So uh, Fridays for me. Are uh, things like this, you know, getting the opportunity to talk to folks, uh, whether it's a podcast, whether it's investors, whether it's a potential candidate, uh, things off of the, you know, typical operational day to day that would happen Monday through Thursday. So it's things like that. I uh, also recap on my notes from the past week, and I actually just log what happened this past week. Actually, on Sundays is when I look ahead to the week ahead. You know, one day I, I hope to actually graduate into that where. You know, I'm looking ahead at the the week coming, uh, the week prior, uh, but I'm slowly making progress here. And uh, so I, I kind of like this format, you know, recap on the week behind, uh, let it kind of simmer and, and gel on, on Saturday and then, you know, uh, kind of ramp back up on Sunday. It actually makes for a good format. And maybe it's even optimal. I don't know yet, but it works for me.
1: So it's wild. Like we've never asked anybody about like their their operating cadence, and so this is kind of my like the first window we're talking about engineering founders. Like with what's going on, can you tell me a little more about like what does the Sunday planning process look like? How far out are you looking at in terms of like goals or milestones? And then when you're planning the next week, like how do you how do you balance that tension?
0: You know, it'll depend on the Sunday. It'll depend on the week coming up. You know, this week coming up, I actually have a board meeting, so I think prepping for. Uh, you know, the week ahead, this Sunday is going to look very different than the week after where I will take the notes from the board meeting and look look ahead to a broader horizon. But on a typical Sunday, what I do is uh, take a look at, you know, what's what's the month ahead look like, uh, just as a very, very high level overview, right? What is the thematic goal that I have for, for this month? And what do I expect to complete by the end of it? Then I zoom back out to the week and take that into How do I set the intention and the context going into our Monday leadership team meeting? I kind of start with the broader view right now. It's a month and, you know, planning anything outside of that. Of course, we have our long-term vision and goals, no doubt. But, you know, getting very detailed about anything beyond that is a little bit of a fool's errand in an early stage startup, in my view. Uh, So looking at a month, zooming into a week, and then looking at how do I best set my leadership team up for success uh, going into the leadership team meeting that we have on Monday afternoons.
1: I love it. Thanks for thanks for bringing me into the operating cadence part. Like I feel like a sense of purpose and intention just by kind of hearing you talk through like Sunday zooming out both to a month and to a week and how that can really create from much more of an intentional time, but also like the how fast that cadence works and can accommodate like the, the changing demands of a startup in a fast way. So thanks for bringing us in your role there. Let's talk about you and in, in First Resonance in, in the very beginning. I know we jumped right into like where you're at right now. Take us back to the origin story. How did this idea come to be? Bring us into to those beginning moments.
0: So uh, we started First Resonance about five years ago. You know, the origin story actually goes back to 10 years ago, I would say, when I ended up out here in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in Illinois in the north suburbs of Chicago, went to the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, had a great friend there um, named Jason. Who was in the mechanical engineering program with myself? Uh, he came back from his summer internship. This is going into senior year. He said, Hey, I yeah, just had this great summer, did an internship at this uh, rocket factory out in Los Angeles. I said, Huh? And <laughs> it's like, Yeah, you know, um, privatizing rocket launch, um, some, some good successes with some recent launch successes, and, uh, you know, looking to work with NASA and, and beyond in the future. And I was like, Wow. Uh, He's like, yeah, you want to come intern next summer? (laughs) I was like, okay, you know, why not? Um, And, you know, that's uh, cutting the story a little bit short on that decision making part. My parents weren't so excited about me moving so far away at that time, nor were they excited about this, uh, you know, crazy high risk. Internship, you know, this is after senior year, right? Um, I was supposed to go down a much more traditional route, you know, uh, with a stable and full time job. So that was all really interesting. In retrospect, of course, one of the best decisions of my life ended up out here in Los Angeles in 2013 to work at SpaceX. Really formative time, seminal time there at SpaceX to uh, go from the first, you know, Falcon 9 V1.1 launch into really building up a production operation to build multiple rockets. And iterate on the design as well as the manufacturing process that allowed us to deliver uh, the continuously improving rocket design, as well as you know the continuously improving process that allowed us to decimate the cost of launch. And then of course reusability came in. So you know I'm compressing my few years that I had there in a little bit. Had the opportunity to build some of the first mobile applications there, connect up the machines, and we created a kind of machine control layer. Uh, and, then, and then got involved with flight reusability, creating the data pipeline and architecture that ended up scaling into comparing manufacturing data with the flight operations data to determine how we should refurbish the rocket and get it back out onto the launch pad.
1: No small effort, no small feat, I imagine.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. It was, it was extremely dynamic. I feel extremely you know, kind of grateful, humble, mind-blown uh, that I had the opportunity to work with the people that I did there. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, you know, a little bit of you only get some of these outcomes and events every once in a while. Right. And what, what a blessing to, to have been there. And I, I got my you know, small, small parts in it. So, yeah, you know, that was great. Nevertheless, you know, hey, look, the company had grown quite considerably. Aerospace and manufacturing can be quite bureaucratic. Uh, or at least I felt, you know, as, as things grew and I was looking for something new. I actually ended up leaving aerospace and manufacturing behind me, worked at a startup here in LA uh, in data science and machine learning as the first engineering hire there. Uh, enjoyed my time there really learning, you know, what does it look like and feel like to work at a company of 6,000 people down to six people. So I was a six person at the company uh, and I, I uh, kept loving it, you know, had the startup bug by then if I liked, if I liked that first thing and then that second thing. I surely must want to start something of my own. And that's when First Resonance got started in uh, 2018.
1: I have a couple follow-up questions. And then I I want to dive deeper into the First Resonance moment because uh, first, like the experience at SpaceX and then directly jumping into a data and ML startup, like we're starting, I'm starting to see the convergence here. But to go back to the SpaceX experience, can you bring us behind the scenes to, to a rocket launch? Like what was that moment like for you to experience your first rocket launch there? Does that celebration translate to first resonance product launches? Like, do you still bring that that same level of joy?
0: Yeah. So you know, it's a little bit of a blur. It's been such a long time. I do remember my first rocket launch. You know, I think more interestingly, or something that's a little bit more vivid in my memory is the first landing mm. of of a rocket, actually. So, uh, and that that might be just because it's more recent. But you know, look, this was a huge feat. For us in the generation that I was really building in. So, look, generations that predated me, huge, huge respect for those people, no doubt. I mean, especially when you hear about the stories of the Falcon One days, I mean, it's just mind blowing to me. You know, we got our success and and something new, something miraculous, uh, and that was actually uh, landing a rocket. So, I remember that, you know, there was a multiple attempts. Uh, I'm sure many of the listeners here and yourself, Patrick, have uh, seen some of the videos and they're those super cuts of the Falcon 9 rocket, having many, uh, I guess what Elon calls unplanned rapid disassembly. right? <laughs> uh, and then when we finally stuck one, I mean, I, I remember having a few tears, I'm not going to lie. Uh, and everybody around me, I mean, it was just like, it was, you know, and this was an ocean landing. Uh, when we had our first land landing, I also had tears in my eyes. But uh, fortunately, unfortunately, I was away on vacation. So I was actually sitting there with my now wife in, in, I think in Panama, just watching the landing on land, which I also had, uh, you know, kind of a great connection to and, and teared up. So, but, you know, in that, in that moment when we were all together, you know, there's these scenes that, that you'll see outside of mission control where everybody lines up for the rocket launches. It's a little bit more sparse today, uh, these days, just because I think, you know, uh, SpaceXers have gotten quite used to the cadence of launch and, and all that. But back then, man, it was a party, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was a great time. And uh we all headed out and celebrated after. It was it was quite emotional and quite amazing to be part of a group in that way. You know, it's kinda like going to one of these big concerts and uh, you know, it was like that, but like something that, that had a you know a, a tremendous input from everybody that worked on it, which had a bigger connection and, and a real feeling of like, wow, this is big. And I, I remember those a lot. You know, you asked the question about whether we we bring that here to First Resonance. Uh, admittedly, not as much as as we should. I'll I'll actually, you know, this is this is uh, inciting some good considerations. I think when it comes to software and product launches, you know, because we're always in this continuous kind of delivery, right? So of course, CI/CD, right? If you're if you're shipping multiple times a day, how do you have a party like that? Um, but that being said, as we kind of mature as a company, we are thinking a lot more on how we. Uh, actually continuously deliver but launch uh really meaningful kind of from more from like a marketing perspective and, and celebrate you know a, a real product delivery that has a customer impact. Uh what, one thing I will mention is we do celebrate our customers here at First Resonance. So with a deep deep amount of humility here, uh we have this uh you know amazing business where we work with people who are building satellites, micronuclear reactor plants you know rockets uh, themselves uh, what else uh, you know uh, different types of energy uh, robotics that power hospitals i mean the list goes on there uh, and when we when we get to actually celebrate one of their launches those are those are actually quite meaningful so sometimes we'll even make like shirts For example, the recent Transporter 8 launch uh, from SpaceX, which is a rideshare mission, uh, we had multiple customers that were actually on that launch. I think about five customers that built their products, their satellites on ION. That was incredible. And it actually kind of brought it a little bit full circle for me, you know, watching a Falcon 9, you know, rideshare launch, launch multiple customers that build their hardware products on ION. That was quite meaningful as well.
1: Wow. I think what's so cool is we're starting with a full circle moment. And I want to go to a specific moment, you know, the moment when you identified the opportunity for First Resonance, that there was a need here. And so I was wondering, can you share a little bit about the story where you saw a couple trends coming, you saw some market opportunities, and then you made the decision to want to start the company and to build the first experiments of the first products? What was that moment like? And, and what were the things converging that gave you confidence that there was something here?
0: Yeah, I think you are touching on really how it came about, which is there are multiple moments where I felt that there was, there was something uh, something there. You know, the first few moments was really while I was still actually at SpaceX. Hey, look, like, you know, there's some amazing things I'm getting an opportunity to do, but there's actually better ways to do this. Uh, and moreover, one thing I always thought was like, you know, the products that, you know, companies like SpaceX, Tesla, and uh, many other great companies out there produce are great in themselves, but the people that they produce are are quite amazing. So that was another insight. I had this feeling that many people would go on to to actually extend further this kind of like broader mission of improving humanity in various ways. And that has turned out to be true. But I had that insight then when I had left SpaceX and then and then was considering um, you know, moving on from the company that I was at, I, I actually started talking to a lot of my former colleagues and peers to figure out what they were doing. And I was like, oh, okay, well, like, can we do some of the things that we were doing before together? And one insight that came out of that was like, hey, yeah, that sounds really cool, but we're still in R&D. We're not, we're not quite in that mode yet. We're still not scaling that that piece of the operation up. And I had like dozens of those types of conversations, which at first made me a little bit upset. I was like, well, okay, if that's true, then, then, oh my God, are my skills valuable? Like, is, like what do I do? Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what should I do next? But then, you know, another another insight came up, which was, well, if they're you know all saying that this is interesting, uh, but they're just a click ahead. I really started thinking a lot more long term. I was like, what does that mean? What is a click ahead? Turned out, it was just a few years, uh, and and the timing of starting the company really came out of well, you know, these are the things that are resonating, things like. Automating hardware testing, things like getting more rich data from the actual production or manufacturing process of a hardware program uh, in a real time and in a connected way. These these elements of things that we were describing and speaking on were resonating. We were just uh, you know maybe a year or a few years ahead. And, and finally, it, it kind of just came down to a little bit of a gut, uh, uh, you know, take and following my gut, which was, let's just put a stake in the ground and let's get a prototype out there, right? Let's build something. And that something ended up being, you know, just this like test automation interface uh, that was meant to be embedded in the manufacturing process. So we, we took that out there and that got a reaction. You know, people had a whole bunch of feedback on like, oh, well, I actually need this or I need that or I need this. So what were people really saying started to gel from there. You know, there was no you know kind of divine insight or or anything like that. Hey, uh, I see the world. I think it needs this. I'm going to build this, and here you are. Uh, it was much more of a dynamic process of the sorrow of understanding. Wow, the things that I'm passionate about building are not necessary. The realization that they're not necessary yet, but they will be, and then finally, you know, kind of just the effort or kind of following my gut and saying, let's go take this out in prototype, and then get a reaction and iterate from there. And that's exactly how you know, the Ion uh, Factory OS, which, which is now our, our primary product, got started.
1: Can you share like, the, the kernel of truth where you said, like, this isn't necessary yet, but will be? Like, what was that hypothesis pre-building the prototype?
0: The idea was this, like, there's this kind of myth uh, about companies like SpaceX and Tesla, uh, that they're very vertically integrated. And I say it's a myth, and this is very controversial, even within the folks that have been there. But the reality is, is that both companies have hundreds, if not thousands of suppliers, thousands of suppliers. And, you know, this is true both for the uh, physical side, you know, hardware, as well as the digital side. So look, we had to solve a lot of problems to to make what we made happen. It wasn't just, again, great design or great mission architecture or something like that. There was a lot of, you know, kind of brass tacks and oil grease wrenches, you know, welding torches, et cetera, involved in, in, in making something new. Uh, and, the, and the same thing was true on the digital side. We had to create a lot of software, look at things in a first principles way, one perspective that i'll share with you and we we talk about this a lot at first resonance is that since you know generation 1 of industrial software and industrial automation we've had this amazing thing happen in the world called the internet and a lot of the Generation 1 architectures that are still very much out there in factories does not account for that, which is just mind-blowing if you think about it, right? Uh, something so foundational, something that's you know, in front of us every single day is not yet quite adopted to its full extent in uh, some of the most critical industries right? Uh, that, are, that are in energy, transportation, so on and so forth. You know, because we had to solve those software problems, I had that experience. Like, hey, we had to build this uh, for a reason. We weren't just getting some of the stuff off the shelf. Why is that? Um, and if we had to do it, and if people are going to be equally ambitious on the next, you know, generation of whatever whatever needs to be solved in the world, let's say next generation satellites, let's say. Next generation types of defense hardware, or electric vertical takeoff landing airplanes, or EV talls, uh, new types of nuclear power plants, right, et cetera. Well, then how are they going to do it? You know, if it wasn't off the shelf for us, uh, is it off the shelf for them? Well, not yet, because we haven't built it. And so that's really the following. Our gut was like, hey, what would the world have looked like, or what would our experience have been like if the kind of that digital connectivity layer that we had to build was actually available for us? And what could it look like if we uh, actually bring something out to market that does that? Does that actually allow for new types of hardware to be created, new types of companies to be formed, so on and so forth? And uh, as it turns out, that hypothesis is coming out to be true.
1: I love the, the, the questions that you're, you're posing here. I mean, because I'm, I'm trying to synthesize like some of the insights that you shared. You know, I think what you said was like manufacturing doesn't quite account for the internet quite yet, like or, or has it been like all pervasive? when you were noticing the types of companies that the folks that you were working with were going to start in terms of these like incredibly ambitious types of companies, oftentimes in these like really emerging hard tech, large scale contexts, and then asking the question, imagining like, what are those next generation types of companies going to need to be successful in forming a hypothesis around that? What's so interesting about that is like those questions to me seem like they apply to sort of the software environment we are we're in right now with this world of like these emerging AI tools that are coming out in terms of like, given this paradigm, like what are the types of tools that these companies are going to need in order to continue to, to form? So there's just like, I noticed things like that, that thought process like translates really well to just like some other like really emerging fields. Were there other questions that helped form these early hypotheses? Or like if you're giving advice to somebody who's in this ideation phase, what questions might you recommend for somebody to assess or validate a hypothesis?
0: That is a good question. Um, and, you know, uh, it's, I, I think about the days fondly where where I had kind of just taken the the leap and, and decided that I'm just going to go into it and and give myself like fully to like discovering the problem. And if there's something there, building a company out of it, you know, this was uh, about five years ago. So I think about those days fondly, but, you know, it seems like a long time ago now. And, and I'll actually mention a few things that, you know, aren't going to apply to everyone always take advice with a grain of salt. That that would be one piece of advice that I would give to anybody, including this one, which is experience really matters. Cutting your teeth on a hard, hard problem, uh, as opposed to just looking out there in the market and seeing what is the shiny thing to build on, right? Like what trend is there? Oh, cool. I see that there's something going on in blockchain. Let me go build on blockchain and solve a problem on blockchain. Is My opinion quite a bit less useful than um, experiencing blockchain somehow in an operation, uh, feeling the pains, and then going to validate that pain with people out there. Hey, is this thing that I'm thinking about, is this painful for you, right? I see that you're b- building a blockchain company. Hey, is this is this pain point that I felt before, is it painful for you? Uh, how are you looking to solve it, right? How are you solving it today? If there was something that could solve that that pain, how much would you value it? Uh, you know, these are all the questions that came up for me when I was looking at all these hardware companies. Uh, hey, look, how are you doing? Test automation. How do you think about testing in general? What about data collection on those tests? Um, how do you think about using uh, real-world manufacturing test data to improve your designs? Uh, if you could, uh, you know, ten x uh, the time, or you know, ten x reduce the time between making use of Manufacturing test data and, or just manufacturing data in general, and your and your hardware design. You know, how much would you value that? What would you do with that time? Uh, those are the types of questions that I was asking uh, back about five years ago, and that's. You know, just by asking those questions, I got a slew of answers. Uh, But the thing that I knew was that I was getting answers. I was getting real answers to those broad questions of what they would do with their time, which is really what the mission I was set off on doing is not necessarily building this app or this feature, and therefore it will, but really looking to get time back into the hands of hardware builders, hardware manufacturers, so they can actually go iterate and invent on more advanced types of hardware to solve the biggest, you know, kind of challenges in in energy, transportation, space exploration, etc. Uh, so it's asking those hard questions, even though they're broad, and seeing if there's something there first, and then and then you know asking your subsequent questions after that.
1: I think it's great, and I think the I really appreciate like the angle of what would you do with that time, and then thinking about your role or relationship with these people, being about how can we accelerate the things that you're doing as like you're like an accelerating partner versus like a solution provider, and I think that's that's a really interesting distinction.
0: Yeah. And that, that's and one thing I'll say on that. That's a hard thing to always keep in mind and remember, you know, especially, you know, uh, uh, folks that are listening, folks like myself spending many, many years in software engineering and data engineering. You know, it could be quite attractive to, you know, fall down the slippery slope of, you know, what features help us get to what solution as opposed to how does the solution end up, you know, uh, buying, buying the customer really what they're looking for, which at the end of the day, people are looking for time. Time is money. So money is a good secondary thing, but time and money are really good things to help people get back.
1: One more, one more kind of question about assessing some of these like early hypothesis moments, like, and maybe this is like a function of, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but I, I'm just curious, like, do you have any advice for somebody looking back in their past experience in terms of like understanding some of those pains that you experienced? Like if somebody was to look back at their experience, what might you point them to? And then the other side of that is like, how might you also recommend they assess emerging trends? And then try to match those intersections up.
0: Look, I think you got to feel the pain. I, you know, I don't have a better answer than that. Maybe I've just felt a lot of pain, um, and therefore had to do something about it. But, but you know, really reflecting on that, you know, oftentimes when people, you know, and it's, especially if you're looking for uh, kind of an entrepreneurial idea or something to go on to, uh, there's some somewhere that you came from, and and ideally, if those experiences are meaningful. Uh, they didn't come without the kind of like pain and, and kind of struggle of building up for that, right? Even even if the ultimate outcome was quite fulfilling and advantageous, there was some work that went into it, right? Uh, or some amount of uh, waste or inefficiency, et cetera. So reflecting deeply on, on one of those things, even if they're unsexy, you know, I think especially if they're unsexy, it's the thing that uh, might be uh, something that you can abstract away for a lot of other people, especially if you're very passionate about it. Now, if you're passionate about it, you know I think uh, visionaries will look out to some of the emerging trends and things that are going on and be able to map that. Well, that was very painful, and we could do this much better with AI. Uh, exploring that right is really interesting. By the way, this is something that we think about and are actually executing on a lot at First Resonance. A lot of these manual workflows in hardware manufacturing, uh, especially in the past year or two, it's not just the automation and connectivity. We're kind of leapfrogging over to that kind of AI decision-making and bringing back into the product, which radically changes, you know, the, the way that things have been done. And that that has happened just in the lifespan of, of the company itself. You, you know, not, not, I think it's important to do it in that order. What is the pain? What are the emerging trends? How can those be connected? And how can that be a solution or a time or money buyer for people that are in your Kind of sphere right uh your your people if you will that makes for uh kind of like a chef's kiss kind of like story and and also keeps keeps you engaged for the long haul you know startups are not easy company building aren't isn't easy but if you're doing it for the people that you can identify with that are quote- unquote your people that that's what you know kind of really keeps you going I I worry about, you know, when, when I see uh, builders building for, you know, a type of person that they don't resonate with, click in with, et cetera. I mean, you're going to be spending a lot of your time with, with your customers, your market, and also attracting the type of talent that can understand uh, that customer and market. So, um, you know, you've got to start with the pain. You got to uh, look at what the trends are. And if you're if you're in it, if you're one of these people and you could solve for them, you're in it for the long haul, that can be a really, really great outcome for the world.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate the the assessment criteria there. And you know, when you're talking about AI and its impact on manual workflows, and that's something that you're you're looking into, it reminded me, I was just at an AI event yesterday uh, in Coeur Idaho, small town Idaho. And it was just this event that was like kind of it was supposed to be an introduction for folks that like have no experience with some of the generative AI models. And, but there was this, this woman there who was representing a massive solar field company. So like they have a bunch of solar fields in Texas. And she was talking about how they're trying to apply like large language models towards their technical directions and technical documentation to create those at a much more efficient and effective way. And so everybody there was starting to brainstorm like what are the new types of jobs that get created when the technical manuals are easily searchable and accessible. So, like if so, if you've got a massive manual about like solar panel maintenance and you can search that, then maybe the like depth of training you have to go through is less so, so that then you could broaden the types of people that you bring in to do solar panel maintenance. And so it becomes like a more of a broad field. I I have to imagine like there are so many problems within the like massive scale hardware and manufacturing space that all of those types of solutions can be a big time and money saver.
0: Huge, huge, huge. Yeah. And you know, the other amazing um, side plug that I'll make here for manufacturing, uh, manufacturing produces more data than any other industry. (laughs) You know, while it produces uh, massive amounts of data, the way that that data has historically been stored let alone accessed has been completely backwards on that there's apparently no correlation between the amount of data produced and how well that data is used in fact it might be an anti-correlation you know that's another kind of perspective and insight that has made us very confident on um you know unlocking uh, what's possible here but but you're right i mean the amount of skill and expertise that goes into understanding, for example, composites manufacturing, right? Carbon fiber composites, very deeply skilled uh, type of craft. And you know, the more and more you learn about it, the more and more narrow you get. But when you think about just how much research there is in composites, uh, you know, to be an even more effective composites engineer or technician, uh, you know, being able to access all of that information and try different forms and rapidly iterate on designs. I mean, man, I, I can't, I can't wait to see, you know, kind of what innovations we get out of uh, out of just that field alone by being able to access that information in a much more, you know, kind of easy way.
1: I wanted to dive into your perspective on the the scope and what you're building the solutions, either early days or now. And so this idea of like focusing on small or or focusing on a, on a bigger or broader solution. So Zorin, can you tell us like, what's your point of view there in terms of like an approach and starting? And then how did you think about building the first resonance product?
0: You know, my perspective has very much shifted since starting the company. You know, there's some of these like, isms and frameworks that have come out of uh, you know, the past 10, 20 years of like software and web development uh, in Silicon Valley. And one of these is you know, find a niche, get, get rich, uh, or you know small, sharp tools type of thing. At the very beginning of us exploring the problem space, I actually subscribed to that. You know Be very narrow on the product and, and solve one thing and solve it well. I, I think it's very appealing, and I think it's actually the right application based on the industry. Uh, if you're doing something horizontal or broad, that's actually exactly what you want to do, so that you could like make like a you know kind of best-in-class product and go broad. But if you are solving a specific pain point uh, for a specific uh, uh, vertical, what we've discovered, as well as what our intuition has taken us to, and a lot of hard discussions with a lot of potential customers has taken us to is that people will want unified uh, experiences across the problems that they need to solve, especially in industries like manufacturing, you know, from certain peers, I've also heard the same is true for industries like healthcare or, or energy, um, you know, some of these kind of legacy, uh, we say legacy, but they're not, they're not legacy. We all drive, we all, you know, use energy, we all go to the doctor, right? These are industries that are right here right now. Their behavior is legacy because technology has kind of left them behind. It's, it's now time to catch up. And for those people, unlike a lot of horizontal tech for various applications, note-taking or communication and, and things like that. The, these people are working on pretty complex and sophisticated problems. And the last thing they want to do is actually figure out how to wire up their various systems and use this API for this or that uh, web up for that, or this integration platform for something else. Uh, what they want is a partner to help them across that kind of complexity, especially when it's, when it comes to dealing with moving data around digitally, right? So Hard learnings, hard conversations. Like I like I mentioned, while we were very you know kind of aspirational about like, hey, look at our thing, it's way better than all these other things. Uh, but just for that one small thing, uh, they'd say, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, but can it you know can it move this and that, and can it connect to this over here? And you know what what capability does it have to address this problem? Because why would I get off of this uh, you know kind of thing? You know, there's again this mirage of this like be 10x better than than your competition. Sure. But keep in mind here that uh, if you're in a, in a world where your competition is 10x wider than you, and that is a value prop to your customer, well, your your 10x better this way, um, you know, vertically uh, might might actually be beat by the 10x breadth that your your customer has now. You got to be mindful there. You can't boil the ocean. Uh, So all this comes with a balance. The other side is we've also learned, while it is important to go broad and solve fuller customer problems and pain points and provide a solution that can come in without too much friction of having to wire up, you know, 10, 15 different things. You don't want to go so wide as to overpromise because you may be competing against solutions that do a lot uh, and have decades of heritage. And uh, if you wander into the wrong zones and start claiming you can do something that you're really not good at, you're going to just as easily get kicked out of the discussion because, again... You know, you've wandered off into uncharted territories where you could have actually just held your held your ground and say, "Hey, we go up to here, and we will connect out if necessary to anything over here." Right? Um, this is a constantly iteration and dialing in that we go through. We we kind of go in this motion where we we go out to a certain point, learn, you know, that that we've gone too far, reel back in for a while, uh, and then decide to. Venture out again and see if it's the right kind of format this time, and then you know come back. It's it's very much I think of it like uh, you know electrons achieving a higher energy state. You have to have the right energy to be able to go out one level, uh, but if you don't have that energy, you run the risk here of not not actually jumping to the next kind of electron cloud. So,
1: is there like an an example of a decision where you had to make where maybe this was too broad or out of our scope and would like push us into that sort of that boundary area, like where you had to make like an inclusion exclusion decision?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll give a very specific one. In manufacturing and many other industries, there's a software product category called ERP. I'm sure uh, you know some of the listeners here have uh, had their trials and tribulations with ERP systems. Or for those who don't know, enterprise resource planning. Uh, they're large, you know, kind of software packages with a lot of professional services and manual implementation to built for large companies. Uh, manufacturing is actually one of the biggest buyers of such class of software. With our product, ION, we actually purposefully call it a factory operating system as opposed to some of the traditional categories in ERP, Enterprise Resource Planning, as we were talking about, or MES, Manufacturing Execution System. So we, we blur, we call it a factory operating system. It does elements of both of those things. You know, interestingly here, Ion does mostly all of what an MES would do. So things like managing work instructions, getting them out to the manufacturing floor, collecting data, managing equipment and locations and resources as processes move through the factory. It also helps companies manage inventory. So where are all my parts? Buy those parts and then receive them in and then kit them out to the work that needs to be done. Right. So That's the supply chain side. Now, historically, that part would actually be an ERP. So sometimes our customers will actually confuse us like, oh, okay, so you do those things. So you're an ERP. And we're like, oh, okay. Now we're like, oh, well, okay. Now nuanced discussion. Because what we learned, again, a little bit painfully about a year and a half ago, uh, one of our customers was so excited about what ION did uh, in this, in this, you know, kind of lane that I was talking about, both the process side as well as the supply chain side. Uh, and and they mistook us for an ERP and started asking us to do A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z, all these things that would be traditionally found in the ERP, especially on the finance and accounting modules, uh, things that we didn't really get into uh, building first resonance to do. We're not passionate about those things. Um, you know, there are others that are passionate about those things, and they should solve them. Uh, But our, uh, you know, hurt here was experimenting with it. We actually went a little bit outside of our comfort zone and entertained it. Well, there's a reason they're asking. They must have a pain. They must not love what they are using or dealing with there. So let's actually just poke at it. Let's go on this journey with them. Let's see if it's something that we can do for them. And uh, by learning, uh, if this is something we could broaden our offering out to for the market more broadly, Uh, ends up, especially in this case with finance and accounting, ends up getting pretty messy when it comes to financial audits and the requirements for software to really fulfill. And that's when we got too close to the oven and, and you know, kind of uh, burned ourselves a little bit in the communication with the customer and quickly learned, hey, look, what we're doing, this is complex. We got a lot to do over here. We love working with you guys. What you want to do over there, very complex and outside of our comfort zone. Uh, we're going to respectfully come back to being great at what you need us to be and partner up with you Uh, how we need to, to, uh, you know, transfer information as needed or work with your other partners uh, that do this well, so that you can be a successful business, right? Uh, And we still kind of maintain that. Will we go out broader one day and uh, maybe even absorb kind of the broader ERP functionality into the factory operating system? Maybe. Uh, But I don't see that happening this year, at least uh, for the time being.
1: I really appreciate being able to kind of understand the thought process there and how you assessed it like through like the filter of, of mission, but also like where you want to build like that expert capabilities. Because it sounds like it, especially like in a world in which customers have existing paradigms for their tools, and you sort of exist outside of those paradigms, like, but are touching on some of the services inherent in there, like how to navigate those relationships when what you're doing is sort of existing outside of like the mental models that they have for like what their tools are supposed to do. I think it's really interesting.
0: Yeah, and, it, and you know the entire field is changing quite rapidly, right? As I mentioned earlier, the internet is now here, and the internet blurs some of these lines of what sits where. I think, in particular, for us, what's super interesting about this is with the internet, you know, the supply chain shifts quite a bit. You know, it's not phone calls and paper and fax documents; it's actually like orders on the internet and when you have that embedded how do you then complete the purchase and you know now fintech is all of a sudden involved so we do see uh, that the lines continue to blur and there's opportunity to kind of help you know kind of understand that complexity that the increased connectivity has but you know you you also have to look at that very very rigorously
1: absolutely Karan, I want to ask you one more question, because, you know, we we're talking about some of these customer relationships. And then I've got a couple of rapid fire questions to, to wrap us up. But I was I was hoping to get your perspective on, you know, that moment when you found that first customer in this like, large scale, highly innovative or emerging technology manufacturing context. What was that like to get that first customer in terms of like, what led to that moment?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's really funny. So I'll I'll just give a quick fun story here. From starting uh, the development of the product to getting our first customer, it was probably a year and a half. And then we got our second customer a month later. (laughs) So, you know, I just shared that fun story because sometimes it takes quite a while to get to your first customer. And then all of a sudden you get your second and by the end of the year you have 15. And it's like, wow, how did that happen? But going back to the first customer you asked about, Patrick, you know this is a fun story as well. We uh, were simultaneously, you know, prototyping and rapidly building up a product and going on Zoom calls and showing it to people, testing it with people, so on and so forth. Uh, my co-founder Neil actually. Uh, was outbounding, cold outbound messages on LinkedIn, you know, searches for like manufacturing, composite manufacturing, you know, our target profile. And we finally got a bite. Uh, and, And I actually, you know, that moment, I will say I had to pinch myself. First of all, I actually didn't know about the company. That also makes it a funny story. Uh, I actually didn't know about the company as much as I know about the space. I didn't know about that particular one. And then secondly, I had to kind of pinch myself and, and ask like, Hey, is this real? Like, are they actually interested? Like, what do they mean? Like, uh, you know, fly up here to Santa Cruz uh, and demo demo Ion to our team. Uh, are they serious? Should we go? And so we went, uh, we, we actually, you know, flew into San Jose airport, got a rental car, drove up to the hills of Santa Cruz for this demo. Uh, We thought we were lost a little bit and uh, we got there and, you know, they were very welcoming and we were very nervous. We got to show them the product. We had a lot of skepticism, a lot of questions, but ultimately what turned out to be our our very first, uh, you know, customer, uh, and, and to this date, uh, one of our strongest partners. And and we, we you know, uh, we hold them very fondly uh, in, in kind of like our customer history, because they, they were our very first customer. They trusted us uh, when there wasn't a clear line of sight to credibility. And, you know, their application is a mission critical one. So to trust us at all took a pretty big leap of faith. But it also, I think, on the other hand, you know, gave them you know, a partner that has an outsized love for them, right? And the outsized regard for them, we, we try to do our darndest to give them everything that they need. We also have to now balance our other customers. We have nearly 50 now. I, I still remember that. And I'm, I'm you know, I, I personally, am very grateful for people out there that are, are, you know, are the types of people that take leaps of faith, that test new technology, uh, that believe in a better way of doing things, even at the risk of potentially being a risk for such a high, high, uh, high criticality type of application.
1: What are recommendations to, to close like, that type of first customer? Like, what does that customer need?
0: I think it goes back to uh, the, the advice that I gave earlier. Is like, Make sure you're surrounded by your people because you're going to be spending a lot of time with them. Uh, not everything's going to work. In fact, most things aren't going to work until they do work. These are your type of people. They'll get that. They'll see that. They'll see that in you. They'll trust you more because you're not just a solution provider. You are a thought partner and a problem solver with them. Um, so find those people. You know, I would say that that would be my best piece of advice. Is uh, you know find people who who are like you that are going to want to spend a lot of time with you as you you know work to solve really critical problems. And you're going to want to spend a lot of time with and build deep understanding with and empathize with their frustration or. Understanding as you're getting your first customer off the ground, that's quite formative and it's going to define a lot of what your product is going to shape up into being. Uh, there's no doubt. Uh, in fact, I would almost caution against bringing in a first customer that you don't want to be the defining customer for what your product is going to look like uh, a year from then, right? You know, sometimes, you know, and I kind of go both ways. Maybe you want to pick up like a practice customer or a customer that's small that will take a bet. Of course, you want to work with people who are going to believe in you, uh, but don't do it if you don't believe in that partnership. Uh, Be choosy.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Karan. We've got some rapid fire questions to wrap up.
0: Okay, let's do it.
1: First rapid fire question. What are you reading or listening to right now?
0: I'm reading this book. It's called The Qualified Sales Leader. I was just you know, recommended it by a sales advisor, uh, which is a little bit outside of my normal reading. I'm also reading Team of Rivals, uh, a story about Abraham Lincoln and his cabinet. Uh, so a little bit of a mix of reading that I'm doing right now.
1: Next question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you?
0: I would say Let's call it the CICD movement and, and the tools around it. Of course, the DevOps movement is, is, is a movement in itself. But of course, that could be very, very broad, right? CICD within it, continuous integration, continuous deployment, has had a big influence on me because I've seen the power of what it could look like to deploy software very uh, rapidly, uh, test it, automatically roll it back. I mean, there's so much la- you know technology la- layers on top of that to drive customer value. For me personally, uh, and from my experience, uh, the lack of that in hardware, you know, fail early, fail often, you know, deploy, test, uh, iterate, that's missing. You know, inherently, it's a little bit tougher in hardware, but I do believe in a world where that is actually a problem that's converged a little bit more, where you can treat hardware more like software and constantly iterate, not just to make mistakes, but actually to learn from the field and, and improve your operations on
1: What's a trend you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet?
0: Well, AI has definitely hit the mainstream. So I'll keep that one out. You know, I think like one thing that a lot of people uh, don't give enough credit while, because it's so big, is the impact of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the CHIPS Act. Uh, So this is a trend or, or, you know, kind of a piece of news uh, policy, call it what you want. It's almost like a movement. an era, if you will, that is going to be tremendously impactful to the future. A lot of that you know, kind of funds is moved from federal to state governments, that state government is going into real estate development and then factory production. That will go into workforce, and then that'll go into kind of how do you connect that workforce and reassemble the entire supply chain of the goods that we all are surrounded by on a daily basis, whether that's the laptops that we're communicating through on right now, the chairs that we're sitting on, the cars that we ride in, the airplanes that we fly in, right? Uh, While the policy has been in the mainstream, the impact of how this reassembles the entire world around us, I think, is going to be something that uh, unfolds in front of us in, in the next decade. Uh, and then when we blink, um, you know, 10 years from now, uh, we're going to reflect back on and and look at it like, wow, there's a lot there. Wow.
1: I had somebody explain a little bit of some of the implications to, to me yesterday in terms of like some of the centers of excellence that are going to be created and like the city's applying to be one of those centers of excellence for, I think it was like for AIML sort of like technical talent. And I think you're so right. Like it is so far off my radar. So I can only imagine like how far off the radar that is for a, a lot of other people. Last question, Karan. Is there a quote or a mantra you live by? Um, or a quote that's been resonating with you right now?
0: Yeah, I don't think about this one often enough, and it's going to be a little bit cliche, but uh, you know, Gandhi had said, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world. Be the change you wish to see in the world. I actually had it up on my wall a long, long time ago, many years ago. That is a quote that I live by. For the things that I do, uh, the work that I do, and, and the products that I create, and increasingly so And in something I'm, I'm getting a lot more in tune with only recently, uh, as well as how I am, right? And, and how, how I show up and how I interact with people. Uh, it's not just about technology and, um, you know, and products and, and all those things. It's also about like, human interaction. So uh, being a positive change of, of how people interact with one another is something I've taken for granted historically. It's something that I'm putting front and center for my life now.
1: A fantastic way to close. Karan, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for an incredible conversation ranging from all of the ways in which the idea came to you and how to help support people with that early ideation hypothesis phase, assessing product breadth and and how to navigate that with your early customers um, all the way to some of these like early experiences and trends. Just a ton of fun. So thank you.
0: Amazing, Patrick. Thank you. Great to chat with you um, and looking forward to keeping in touch.
1: Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders. Make sure that you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify. And if you want to connect with other engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own companies or who've already made the leap, we're building an engineering founders community. We'll be hosting a ton of virtual meetups, sharing resources and lots of other fun things to support your founder journey. So if you're looking for support, sign up for updates at elc.community that's elc dot c-o-m-m-u-n-i-t-y and we'll see you next time